In chapter 28, verse 30, Paul's in Rome, and it says this. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. What a glorious end to the book of Acts. The gospel is going forth without any sort of hindrance. God has, we'll see how he does it, but God has gotten Paul to Rome and the gospel to Rome so that it can continue to spread out to the ends of the earth from Rome. What an ending. God had the gospel and his messenger exactly where he wanted it to be. When God wants his word and his people to get to a certain place, he makes sure it happens. It always happens in the timing and in the manner that God wants it to happen. Now kids, what was yesterday? Speak up, laddies. I can't hear you. What was yesterday? St. Patty's Day. That's right. All right. St. Patrick's Day. Okay, now, when you think of St. Patrick's Day, we think of the, you know, um, all the, the images, the, oh, I can't even think of the four-leaf clover or shamrock, uh, rainbows with pots of gold at the end of it, little guys dressed in green saying they're magically delicious, you know, things like that. We think of, when we think of St. Patrick's Day. Of course, St. Patrick's Day is based on, well, it was founded because of a historical person named Patrick. And just like old St. Nick, lots of myths and legends have been attributed to Patrick. But Patrick was a historical person. Um, St. Patrick was a, a real live person. And there, although there are plenty of myths and uh, false things about Patrick that have to be sifted through, we can determine certain things about the true Patrick. We know, for example, that he was born in Britain, not Ireland, by the way, uh, in around 390 A.D., to wealthy parents who were also devout believers in Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, some have been able to determine from some of the historical records that his father was a deacon in the church. During his years at home, Patrick, though, showed no desire for Christ whatsoever. At the age of 16 in 405 A.D., a group of Irish raiders who were attacking his family estate took Patrick prisoner. And they took him as a slave and trans transported him to Ireland where he spent six years doing slave labor. During his work as a slave, some of his tasks included shepherding outdoors away from the people. And it was during this time alone between he and God that, that God got a hold of his heart. And he became a devout Christian, embracing the Christian faith of his upbringing. It had mattered little to him before, but now Christ had invaded his heart. His words, Patrick's words, were, the, were this, referring to his conversion. And there the Lord opened the sense of my unbelief that I might at last remember my sins and be converted with all my heart to the Lord my God, who had, re, who had regard for my objection and mercy on my youth and ignorance and watched over me before I knew him. And before I was able to distinguish between good and evil. And he guarded me and comforted me as would a father with his son. 
It was after this conversion experience that, that Patrick began to feel a burden on his heart for his captors, for the Irish people. But then six, after six years of being a slave, he escaped the island and returned home to Britain. But over time, he sensed the Lord sending him back to Ireland to be a missionary, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. He was ordained by the church and, and um, later was sent off to Ireland and found unprecedented success in his evangelistic efforts. His experience of the Irish language and the culture during his years as a slave gave him unique insight and ability to communicate the Christian gospel with effectiveness in Ireland. Although there may have been a small number of Christians on the island when Patrick arrived, most of the Irish people practiced animism, and it was because of, of Patrick's efforts, it was actually because of God's efforts using Patrick, that the, uh, this little island of Ireland became transformed and would eventually become one of those most Christianized nations in Europe. When God has an island of people that he wants to reach, that he wants to save, he makes it happen. Even through some bizarre and perhaps even some painful circumstances to get his man there. When God wants the gospel to penetrate a new land, arrive in a city, to cross an ocean, he makes it happen. And that's what we have here at the end of the book of Acts. God wants the gospel and he wants his messenger, although the gospel has reached Rome by this point, because we know there's a church there. But he wants Paul there, and he wants it to become the, the, the epicenter of the continuation of the spread of the gospel into the ends of the earth. And God wants his man in Rome. He wants the gospel being preached even more boldly in Rome. And he's going to make it happen. He's going to get it there, even though it involves some very, very, very painful and difficult circumstances for his man, Paul. Why Rome? Well, getting the gospel to Rome was of great strategic importance, first of all. It was the capital of the known world. It was at that time the center of civilization. It was of great strategic importance for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. So there was strategic importance behind the gospel getting to Rome. But getting the gospel to Rome was also of great spiritual importance. Ultimately, it is the rejection of the gospel by the Jews that projects Paul toward Rome. Symbolically, he is taking the gospel to Rome because of the Jews' rejection of the gospel. But even physically, really, he's being jettisoned off to Rome because of the Jewish rejection of him, which we'll look at more today. The promise that God had made Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that in him, meaning in Abraham's offspring, all the families of the earth would be blessed, that promise was coming true. It was happening, and it was happening because of the rejection of the very people to whom the promise had been made. It was happening because of the rejection of the people who were Abraham's physical ethnic descendants. It was the key reason that the gospel was now spreading out to bless the whole earth. In Luke's narrative, the Jews in Jerusalem reject Jesus. Okay, remember, got to remember, Luke, the gospel of Luke goes along with Acts. It's like chapter 1 and chapter 2. In Luke's narrative, they, they reject Jesus, then they reject Peter, and they reject John, they reject Stephen, and now they reject Paul. But ultimately, they're not rejecting men, they are rejecting the gospel, and it's going out to the ends of the earth as a result of their rejection. Oh, how grieved Paul was over these things. He loved his kinsmen, and that's why he went at length 
as we saw last week, to try to do all that he could to be at peace with his brothers, especially those within the body of Christ, his Christian brothers, but also at peace with his Jewish brethren. He had a great burden for his kinsmen. He said this in Romans 9, 3, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul was saying, I, I wish I was cut off and bound for hell so that my brothers in, would come to know Jesus Christ, my kinsmen, my nation, my people. But the Jews in large part had rejected the gospel. And that very rejection was the fuel God was using to propel the gospel to the ends of the earth. So Paul and the gospel were headed to Rome. And God has a very interesting way of getting Paul to Rome. I mean, you look at this narrative and you think, I mean, he's already over in Europe. He's in Macedonia. God, why don't you just say, hey, Paul, come on over to Rome. But God has purposes beyond the things that we can see immediately. He takes Paul on the scenic route to Rome. Okay? You guys ever known people that just like to take the scenic route? It always takes a lot longer and the roads are much windier. Just get on the interstate and get there, all right? We, our families that get on the interstate and get there kind of family. But every now and then I wish we were a, a, a scenic route type of family. Well, in this case here, Paul's going to go on the scenic route, but it's not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult for him. God's plan to get him to Rome involves a lot of pain, heartache, persecution, turmoil. So as Paul draws near to the end of Rome, we, draws near to Rome, we draw near to the end of Acts. But let us remember where we're at. Okay, let's bring us up to speed, just as a way of reminder. Paul has been, he's gone to Jerusalem now, he's arrived there, he's delivered an offering from all the Gentile churches to the church in Jerusalem. James and the elders there in the church, they receive him gladly. But there's trouble brewing, there's trouble below the surface. You see, some of the Jewish saints, some of the brothers, which numbered in the tens of thousands, by the way, have had their minds corrupted by false teachers, the Judaizers who have taken advantage of their, their zeal for the law and of the political atmosphere of the day to convince these Christian brothers that Paul had rejected Moses and had taught the Jews, and that's important, they were saying that Paul was teaching the Jews in other nations, in other parts of the Gentile lands, to reject Moses and telling them not to circumcise their children, not to observe the law, the rituals, the rites, the ceremonies, and the symbols. But of course this was a lie. Paul had not done this. What he had done was declare to them that it was no longer necessary. But he had not at any time told the Jews to forsake their heritage. Instead he repeatedly showed how Christ was the fulfillment of all that they had practiced. And now there was no significant distinction between Jew and Gentile. But regardless of what Paul was really teaching and what these Judaizers were twisting his teaching to mean. The tensions were very high and Paul was in danger. So... So the Jewish elders, along with James, proposed that Paul sort of offer an olive branch out there. And they proposed that he, he take four men who were, who were completing a Nazarite vow and, and take them to the temple and purify himself along with them and, and pay their expenses, which was very, very costly. And this would be a significant way to show the Jewish believers that he was still a devout Jew himself. And then James and the Elders renewed their commitment to the gospel of grace through faith alone by reaffirming their Acts 15 decision not to impose upon Gentile believers the law and circumcision and everything else that came along with that. Unless you think that Paul believed in the law as some sort of means of salvation, 
let me remind us what he had already written by this time in his life in Romans 10. He says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's speaking of his Jewish brothers. That they may be saved. That's his desire for the Jews. That's why he's going through this, this relinquishing of some of his own freedoms in the gospel so that he can see his brothers saved. Verse 2 of Romans 10, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so he's referring here really to the Jewish nation, not to those Christians, because the Christians in the church have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, the Christian Jews. But the other Jews have this zeal for the law, but it's not according to knowledge. They've, they don't realize and they're not submitting to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Paul, with a love for the gospel and a love for the church in Jerusalem, heads with these men to the temple to complete these vows and to be purified, not because in doing so he was in any way gaining or earning righteousness with God, but as a symbolic gesture of an old system of shadows that were slowly fading away as the sun rose in the world under the new covenant. So there we are. There's where we left it last week. And it wouldn't be just wonderful at all, just wrapped up right here with a big, Paul goes and does this, and, and then they all sing Kumbaya and have a fellowship meal. Okay? It doesn't happen that way at all. Let's read. Acts 21, verse 27. That's where we're going to start today. Acts 21, 27, verse 27. Start, we're going to start there. We're going to bite off some pretty big chunks here as we come towards the end. Acts chapter 21, starting at verse 27. If you... Um, we need a Bible this morning. They are under the seats in front of you. You can grab one there. And this passage is actually on page 797, I believe, of that Bible. The little brownish, tannish colored Bibles that we just got. Acts 21, starting in verse 27, says this. When the seven days were almost completed. Now these are the seven days of purification that he's going through. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia... Seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people, against the people and the law of this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. Now, let me just pause there for a second. Why would, why would he mention the gates shutting? I think Luke here is throwing something that's very symbolic to us. When he says Paul was dragged out of the temple and the gates were shut. I think for Luke and for those who are reading this, this whole incident here is the final straw. Because not too much longer after this, God wipes that temple off the face of the earth, never to be rebuilt again. The gates are shut as Paul's dragged out of the temple. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. And some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. 
And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! Now what would you do if you were Paul in this situation? You've done everything you can to, to well first of all, to, for the unity of the church and the body of believers. But also you're trying, you desperately have a love for your people. And you go there and you're doing everything you can to, to honor the temple. You're actually being purified so that he can go into the temple and worship the way he's supposed to worship. He's done all that they've asked him to do. And of course they see him and this mob breaks out. Paul has been rejected. He has been assaulted now because of his faith. Paul's love for his Jewish brethren and for the lost in general once again shines through. Because Paul could have said, get me out of here. But instead he tells the tribune, stop, stop, can I say something? We'll pick it up in verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the Assyrians out into the wilderness? Again, let me pause there and just give a little parenthetical note. History does show that there was a group of, uh, there was an Ephesian who, um, I mean an Egyptian, who did lead a revolt of 40,000 men, at least what Josephus says, but Josephus may have been exaggerating, out into the wilderness at this time. Josephus was exaggerating because the scriptures here say 4,000. So this just shows the, the historical accuracy of Acts and Luke. He doesn't have to put these details in there, but God inspired him to do these things, I believe, so that we could know beyond a shadow of doubt these are historical documents we're dealing with. Verse 39, Paul replied, I I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. And we're going to look here at what he says in a second. But Paul has a tremendous love for his people. Matter of fact, the fact that he uses Aramaic when he speaks to them demonstrates that love for his people. It actually demonstrates his respect for the temple and for the Jewish people in general. Because actually, he could have spoken Greek. Matter of fact, more people would have understood him if he spoke Greek because this is the day of, Pente this is Pentecost. There are all kinds of Hellenistic Jews from all over the the, the known world that have come, probably there were more Greek-speaking Jews there than there were Aramaic-speaking Jews. But Paul speaks Aramaic because it is the language that's showing respect to the Jewish people here as he addresses them. And he says some very interesting things here in a second. Now before we get there, I want to just mention some things that will help us as we, as we continue through Acts and sort of finish up Acts here over the next few weeks. This is the first of six different defense speeches or speeches in his defense that Paul gives as we go through the rest of this book. The first one is right now before the Jewish mob, later in chapter 23 before the Sanhedrin. In chapter uh, 24 he gives a defense before the governor Felix. Then after two years of imprisonment in Caesarea he gives a defense before Festus, the governor who replaces Felix. Then before Agrippa and Bernice. And finally, in Rome, before the Jewish leaders in Rome, in chapter 28. We never get to read, ironically, of Paul's defense before Caesar. 
Which I'd love to hear that because Paul will see appeals to Caesar and that's why he ends up going to Rome. And I would love to have heard his defense before Caesar in Caesar's court. But the Holy Spirit, being much wiser than any of us, chose only to give us these six. Each speech includes an appeal to Paul of, for Paul's innocence before God, before the Jewish people, and before Rome. These speeches focus on Jesus as the risen Messiah. And we see three themes sort of emerge in this, um, these speeches. And so I gave them to you, and I'll bring them up just here all at once. Okay, number one, we see Paul talk about being a good son of the Jewish nation. And then Paul talks about being a good citizen of the Roman Empire. And then Paul, in his defenses, shows that he is a good slave of the kingdom of God. He is a son of the nation of Israel. He is a citizen of the Roman Empire. But ultimately, and most importantly, he is a slave of the kingdom of God. And we see that emerge in these speeches. Lord willing, today we'll look at Paul's time in Jerusalem as much as we can. Uh, and then we'll look at his time in Caesarea next week. And then we'll conclude with his time in, in Rome right before Easter. That Either we'll go right up to Easter or, or right before Easter with this series and then launch into a new series. But for now, let's return to the scene in Jerusalem. This Jewish mob, it's a scene of, of profound irony. Paul is addressing this Jewish crowd from the safety of his Roman attendants. Those who should have embraced Paul's gospel. Those who possessed the great privileges which had now been realized in Jesus Christ were determined to destroy all who promoted it. The only thing that kept them from fulfilling their design was the intervention by Gentiles who lacked that privilege. Luke presents the Roman commander as, as a person of, of reason and restraint and honest inquiry in face of this Jewish fury. And the Roman commander gives Paul permission to speak. So Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 22, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. So his use of Aramaic here gets their attention. Paul, his address here, he, he is showing that he's doing all he can to bring down any barriers there might be to the gospel message as he communicates to them. And these are people that just beat him up. I mean, let's not, they were about to kill him. And it took a while for those soldiers to get there. He's probably swollen already and bloodied as he's standing on the top of these steps here addressing his people. What love just shines through Paul's life for his people and for the gospel. With that said, I want us to see three things here in Paul's defense. He accomplishes three things. And so I'm going to share these with you and then we're going to go through his speech little by little. First of all, see if I can bring this up here. Paul's defense accomplishes three things. First, it reveals the deadly and damning emptiness of religion that doesn't point to Jesus. It reveals the deadly and damning emptiness of religion that doesn't point to Jesus. So he relates his own experience to them in Acts 20, 22, verse 3. He says, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of our law, I mean, of, of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all you are to this day. I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. 
From then I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take also take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul shares his own religious zealousness that once possessed him. These Jews had a religious zealousness that, that, that was possessing them. And they, like Paul once, were, once was, were heading straight to hell. Despite their zeal and their religion. Religion is deadly and damning no matter how moral and nice that adherence to such religion might make someone. Of course, all religions in the world, apart from Christianity, teach morality and men ascending to God through his or her good works. But Christianity teaches depravity and man that needs God to descend into our mire and muck of mankind to redeem, reconcile, and remake humanity. But at least Judaism, right? At least Judaism was pointing to the one true God. But it missed that one true God. It had missed what that one true God had taught them and shown them about himself and about mankind and about his provision in order for them to be with him. They had missed the one to whom all the ceremonies, all the sacrifices, all the symbols had pointed. And in doing so, they had put their hope in the ceremonies, in the sacrifices, and in the symbols to the point that, that the true substance of their faith was something other than the hope of Israel. Jesus had arrived on the scene and they had missed it. Their zealous religious adherence had made them blind. And religion will always do that. Blind religion, that is. Oh, how we too in our churches must watch out. For if our churches become anything other than places where God's called out people worship the risen Christ and acknowledge that he alone is our hope for salvation and our only hope for sanctification, then we can easily slip into a religion of morality that is both deadly and damning. Very easy. Very easy to slip into a religion that's deadly and damning because it's Christless. It's gospel-less. It's grace-less. Paul refers to his Jewish experience in Philippians as well. He says this, If anyone has reasons for confidence in their flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal of persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul, in that passage, says it's just trash. It's rubbish. The language is actually much stronger than it comes across in the ESV there. It's nasty stuff compared to a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Paul's speech here reveals the deadly and damning emptiness of Christless religion. But also, number two, it reveals the need for individuals to experience the transforming work of the risen Jesus. Now I apologize, the notes I put into your print, that I printed out for you, it was from an older outline when I was working on the sermon, so I've left a couple of words out, so you have to just plug them in. It reveals the need for individuals to experience the transforming work of the risen Jesus. Acts 22.6 As I was on my way in tr to draw near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light but did not understand the voice. And the one who was speaking to me. The voice of the one who was speaking to me. Verse 10. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus. And there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light. I was led by the hand by those who were with me. And came into Damascus. Without the intervening work of Christ invading our selfish, self-centered, idolatrous, false hope, sin-stained hearts, we are totally helpless. Without Christ invading, we are helpless. Paul recounts his conversion story here. And we don't have to get too much more detail into, into detail about it here because we did cover this way back in Acts chapter 8. But, but Paul gives the story here, and, and what we do see, Paul is not taking any credit at all for his own salvation, which he shouldn't. He is making the point that he was headed to get rid of these Christians, to do away with the Christians. But Christ came in and did away with his stony heart instead and gave him new life. Christ invaded his life. A transformed heart is a heart over which Jesus has made himself Lord and has entered into and invaded into. Paul says here, what shall I do, Lord? Paul lies on the road to Damascus prostrate before a conquering king. That's the image here. Paul on his face before a king that has just conquered him. What shall I do, Lord? King Jesus has conquered his heart and is now his Lord and his master. There is no such thing, my friends, as this phrase here. I have made Jesus my Savior, but later I made him my Lord. That is foreign to the scriptures. It doesn't exist. If he wasn't your Lord when you were supposedly saved, then he wasn't your Savior. Jesus only saves those over whom he reigns as Lord, for they have entered into his rule, his reign, his kingdom, under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, they still serve the serpent king of the serpent tribe. Paul shows these Jewish brothers that indeed this Jesus whom they had killed was very alive and very real. Jesus of Nazareth had indeed done a remarkable transforming work in his heart, but he goes further. Okay, I want to see the third point here in Paul's speech. Number three, it reveals, Paul's defense reveals the new covenant has been initiated through faith in and union with Jesus. Again, there's a few words there that aren't in your notes, so please add those. It reveals that the new covenant has been initiated through faith in and union with Jesus. Acts twenty-two twelve. 12. 
He says, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there, which is interesting here. I think Paul just adds another little note here. The Christians, my friends, are not anti-Jewish. We're not anti we're devout. We are actually the completion of the Jewish religion. So please. He shows how devout that the Christians were to the one true God. He says, verse 13, talks, it says that Ananias came to me and standed, standing by me said to me, Brother Saul. Now this is why I say that King Jesus was already Lord over, brother, over Saul's heart because Ananias calls him brother. Some people wonder, well, was he really saved on the road or was it later? No, Ananias comes to him and says, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, and this is important, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. The righteous one. The righteous one. Paul saying that phrase to these Jews as he recounts this story. That this risen Jesus Christ whom he was persecuting or had been persecuting. The one that they had killed was indeed the righteous one. The Christos, the Messiah, the anointed one, the consolation of Israel, the hope of the nations, the every one of those words mentioned in that video, the one that they had been waiting for. Yes, indeed, this was the righteous one of Isaiah 53, 11. Paul was declaring that by recounting his story to the people there standing in the temple. And now Paul was to be a witness to this Messiah of his coming. And more than that, the new covenant that Jeremiah had spoken of so long ago had come in Christ and had been inaugurated. That's the only conclusion the Jews could have come to when they hear Paul recount Ananias' words to him that says, Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. You see, the Jews understood baptism. They Jews understood that baptism rightly conveyed a connection with and a membership in the household of Israel. Baptism was an initiatory rite by which a person was made clean and fitted to enter God's covenant community. Now Jews who were already members of that community underwent cleansing rituals and washings when they became defiled under the law, but only in order to be restored to full fellowship in the community. Jews consider themselves already clean by virtue of their Abrahamic election and subsequent setting apart by circumcision. And thus they didn't undergo the baptismal initiatory washings. But Gentiles, Gentile proselytes were baptized both as a ritual cleansing and to symbolize their entrance into the household of Israel and their union with the household of Israel. Thus Paul's audience would have been shocked by this revelation that Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, who had, who had been raised at the feet of Gamaliel, a Pharisee, that Paul was baptized as a sinner? That was controversial. This Pharisee was in effect saying, or this man who had been a Pharisee, was in effect saying 
in telling them that prior to his encounter with the risen Jesus of Nazareth, he was not a full Israelite, that is, a full covenant son of Abraham. For all his Jewish pedigree and credential under the law, he was no different from the Gentile dogs. He too was a sinner outside of the true Abrahamic community who needed to be brought in through the washing of baptism, through union with Jesus Christ. Moreover, Paul was indicating that his cleansing and entrance into the Abrahamic community came through faith in the name of Jesus Christ. Or Ananias said, calling on his name. And of course, there's no room for baptismal regeneration to be read into this text. Don't read into that. Remember, Paul was already called a brother before Ananias told him to do this. The language here is the same language. I believe it's, is it 1 Peter, Deemer, where, where it talks about baptism as, a, um, as an appeal for a clean conscience here. It's a profession of a faith in Jesus Christ. This was radical for Paul to say that he needed to do this. And thus was telling every one of them out there that they needed to call in the name of the Lord Jesus and be baptized as well. Just as Peter had already done way earlier in Acts chapter 3. So this was radical. But it was what he finished his speech with that caused his time in the temple to come to a quick end. Verse 17. He continues his story. He said, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, who's him? That's Jesus. Saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. So Paul is telling the Jerusalem people <laughs> exactly what they end up doing. He is saying, the righteous one, who's already identified the risen, alive Jesus as Nazareth, Nazareth as the righteous one, the Messiah. He's saying, the Messiah told me to get out of Jerusalem, because you guys weren't going to accept his message. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now up to this point, they had listened pretty patiently to Paul. But this was too much. That the righteous one was being sent, to, the message of the righteous one was being sent to the Gentile dogs. Up till now they had heard Paul talk about his forsaking of the order of the Pharisees. And they, they, they were, weren't happy with that. And then to hear Paul speak of seeing the risen Christ whom they had killed, surely that had them seething. And then to hear of a baptism into a new covenant, that was making their blood boil. But now to hear that God was sending Paul with the message of the Jewish Messiah to the Gentiles, those dirty, disgusting, God-hating, evil Gentiles, was too much, and this man needed to die. Up to this point, it says in verse 22, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, and I'll just end it right there. I could go on, but I don't have time this morning. And I, I want to make sure we're going through this in the right pace. But let's just end it right there. They, they send him off. They're throwing dirt in the air. You can imagine the scene. I don't know. I couldn't find any, any really historical uh, discussion of why dirt throwing in the air, what that necessarily meant. All I can guess is it's pretty bad. Okay. 
they're pretty ticked off. They're shouting. They're throwing dirt in the air. And, and the Romans are having to save him. Save him from his own people. And so ends Paul's defense, his first defense to the Jews in the temple. This was probably Paul's last visit to the temple. In 13 years it would be gone forever. To this day. Because it's been replaced by a better temple. It was only pointing to a greater temple anyway. This priesthood was meant to point to a better priest. These sacrifices were meant to point to a final sacrifice. And these Jews had missed it. And so ends Paul's defense before the Jews and also ends his freedom and begins his journey to Rome. God had used some difficult and painful means to get Paul on the road to Rome. But it's pretty cool. From this point forward, he's going to have a full armed Roman escort all the way to Rome. It's not going to be easy. Matter of fact, life's going to be difficult for Paul. And like his Lord, his freedom has been stolen from him and he's been humiliated and shamed. And even though he might be hindered, the gospel is not hindered. It's going forth in boldness and without hindrance. And it's headed to Rome and it's going to the ends of the earth and it's still going to the ends of the earth and nothing is going to stop it. It's going to the ends of the earth and God will use us and he may use us in some very painful ways to make it happen. Some pretty confusing ways to make it happen. The message is heading to the ends of the earth. It's the message that saved Paul that Jesus is alive. That he must repent and believe and profess him as king so that his sins might be washed away. It's the same message we close with today. Repent and believe in Jesus. He is alive and well. And he wants to rule and reign. He will rule and reign over all who are his. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and conclude with a word of prayer and a song. Let's just talk to King Jesus right now. Jesus, we love you. Father, I don't meditate sufficiently on who you are. Jesus, I don't meditate sufficiently on those names that popped up in that video. Or on the things we sang about today regarding who you are and what you accomplished. And because of that, because of my failure to meditate on who you are, I, in my flesh, along with everybody who fails to meditate upon who you are, easily slip into deadly and damning religious practice. Putting my hope in coming to church and putting my hope in being a good dad and whatever else I might do to make myself feel good about myself. But instead, Lord, I pray, King Jesus, that you would invade my heart in a fresh way today. Invade my heart in a fresh way that I again might be prostrate before the conquering king. And use me, and use all of us, however you see fit. Just as you use Paul. And just as you've used countless brothers and sisters from the day the church began to take your word to difficult places, both near and far. Men like Patrick, 
Men like William Carey, Hudson Taylor, women like Lottie Moon. But then millions upon millions of other men and women whose names we will never ever hear about. That we won't celebrate. That have suffered for the gospel's sake. Maybe just trying to get it to their husbands. Or to their workplace. But God, we ask that you'd use us however you see fit. You're the one spreading this word to the ends of the earth. We're just your slaves. Use us however you see fit. And we won't complain, Lord willing, by your grace. So Lord Jesus, have your way this morning as we sing one more song to you. Have your way with us. Let us respond appropriately. If it means prostrate before you, then it's prostrate before you. If it means weeping, it's weeping. If it means just coming up here and putting a prayer request in that, that you've laid upon our heart, that's what it is. If it's giving our tithes and offering, just we respond to you now, Jesus. Move through your spirit in any way you wish in our congregation now. We ask this in your name, your holy name, the name upon which we call, the name upon which we were baptized. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.